You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew, the 13th chapter, Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read beginning at verse 24 down to verse 30, and then we will pick up at verse 36 and read to verse 43. The Word of God says this, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest... And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Or if you would look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the privilege we have to declare Your holy Word this morning. And as we acknowledge each week, we acknowledge again this day that we need Your help. Lord, without Your power at work, without Your Spirit serving as our teacher this morning, all will be vain. And so as the one preaching this morning, I ask for Your help, that You would grant me clarity of mind and speech, And that the result would be that you would be honored and your word would be handled rightly and would go forth in in a power that is not explained by man. And Lord, we pray for the hearers, as has already been prayed this morning, that Lord, we would be attentive, that we would give you our very best in the way that we listen. And that Lord, you would take your word and plant it in our hearts in a way that bears much fruit, in a way that transforms our lives. We thank you for the testimony of Brianna this morning. We thank you for your saving work in her life. We pray for those 
today hearing me who don't know you. We ask that you would open their hearts, that, Lord, you would shine forth your light into their hearts, giving them the knowledge of your Son, and that you would save them. But, Lord, we need your Word as the church. We gather as the church, and we need today to be washed and cleansed and strengthened and confronted and, and transformed by the power of your Spirit working with His sword in hand, your Word. And for these things we pray, and for these things we will give you thanks when they are accomplished. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Until our Lord returns, the preaching of the Word of God is going to meet with four kinds of hearers. This is what we were reminded of. This is what we learned in the previous parable, the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. Only one of those kinds of hearers represents salvation. In that parable, our Lord taught us that the Word of God is going to be disregarded. Uh, some hearers are going to be like the hard pan surrounding the fields, uh, like roadways. The seed's going to fall on them and just sit there. And the birds of the air snatch those seeds away, and the one who is the thief is the devil. They're going to be people who hear the Word of God and are not moved by it, not affected by it at all. Some people are going to hear the Word of God and respond to it superficially, like shallow soil. Uh, it seems like the Word of God takes root, and immediately there seems to be a, a joyful response in what is heard and a believing response in what is heard. But then when the difficulty comes because of the Word of God, they're going to wither up and fall away. And then some people are going to hear the Word of God, and over time it will be proven that the cares and concerns of the world choke out the seed of the Word of God. Again, there will be a time perhaps where it seems like they respond with faith to what they hear, but over time it is proven that they love the world, they do not love the Lord, and that seed will prove to be unfruitful. But despite all of that, the saving work of the king goes on. It will be accomplished. God's saving purposes will not be thwarted. The Word of God will meet with good soil, and the result of that will be lasting fruit. During this age, as the gospel is being preached, as the Word of the kingdom is going forth, the citizens of the future earthly kingdom of Christ are being gathered in. The family of God, a family of faith, a family of regenerate people, that family is being formed through the preaching of the gospel. This is what we learned in the parable of the, of the sower, the parable of the soils. Now we come, in verses 24 through 30 and then verses 36 through 43, we come to a parable that introduces for us another fact concerning the advancement of the kingdom. What this parable teaches us is the sons of the kingdom are destined to live alongside the sons of the evil one until the end of the age. There will be no separation during this age, the time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. I mean, this is the additional information that the Jewish people did not grasp, that the king was going to come the first time to save, he'll come the next time to judge, that, that in His first coming the judgment would not be immediate. The separation between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one will not be immediate. We are destined to live together on this earth until Jesus returns. 
And yet, this will be no hindrance to God's saving purposes. Just like the rejection of God's Word will not thwart God's saving purposes, some will hear, some will be saved. So, the fact that we're going to live in a wicked world, an evil world, until Jesus returns, this will not thwart God's saving purposes. The work of the kingdom marches on. That's what we learn in this parable this morning. So, I want to just present this parable to you in four points, in four headings. And I'll just introduce them as we come to them. The first thing I want you to see with me is the parable declared. Just listen to what the crowds would have heard as Jesus declared this parable. The parable declared. First of all, He told them that the kingdom of heaven has become like a situation faced by a field owner. Verse 24, He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And what He means by that is to, to the situation faced by this man. It's not the kingdom is comparable to the man himself, but the kingdom is comparable to the situation faced by this man who owned a field and sent out his servants to sow that field with good seed. The kingdom of heaven is comparable to this. The owner, verse 25, sowed good seed in his field, but an enemy sowed weeds. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Epispero is the word translated sowed the second time there. The enemy came and sowed tares. And, and the word means to sow on top of a crop or to sow afterward. So the slaves of the owner go out into the field during the day. They sow good seed in the field. At night, while they're sleeping, an enemy comes and there's another sowing, a sowing on top of that, a sowing after that. And what is sown are counterfeit seeds, a counterfeit crop of wheat. Weeds are sown. And most commentators believe that the weeds spoken of here, it would have been darnel. One commentator says this, bearded darnel is perhaps the most likely suggestion. This weed looks rather like wheat when young, but matures to have a black seed and place host to a fungus that can be quite toxic to humans. So at the beginning of the process of growth, it looks like wheat. It all looks the same. But what is happening here in the parable is that the time comes when the grain begins to come to fruition and the slaves of this owner of the field recognize, hey, there are lots of weeds here. Darnel begins to make its appearance. Verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares, then the tares became evident also. Now, in the parable, the owner says an enemy has done this. This actually happened at this time in history. Competing crops, competing owners, wasn't uncommon for an enemy, a competitor, to do something like this. In fact, the Romans had laws against it. That's how common it was. It's interesting. We'll talk about this more tonight as we deal with the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Interesting, isn't it, how Jesus takes what was known to people and teaches them through what was known about what was unknown to them. He takes what was common, and He teaches about things that are uncommon. And so He's doing here. So He takes something that actually happened in their day. An enemy of a competing field owner goes and sows 
weeds among his crop of wheat. The slaves recognize this. They ask for an explanation. Verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? And of course, they assumed that he had. What, what's going on is what they're saying. How then does it have tares? Verse 28, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. Then the slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? The crop is growing. There's a mixture. It's not yet harvest time. Would you want us to, to begin the process of separation now? But he said, no. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. The owner, recognizing how the root systems would be intertwined, recognizing that if you try to make the separation before the time of harvest, you're going to actually do damage to what can be a good crop, leave it alone. And then when the time of harvest comes, I will instruct the reapers to make the separation. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest and in the time of the harvest. I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So at the time of the harvest, we'll make the separation and the, the weeds we will burn and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. This is what the crowd heard. This is all that the crowd heard. Which leads to my second point, that is the, ex, the explanation of the parable delayed. The parable declared, this is what they heard, but notice the explanation for the parable is delayed. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So Jesus gave this teaching, but he gave no explanation. And even the way Matthew organizes his material, there's a gap, isn't there? He records the parable, then he records another parable and another parable, and then in verse 36 he records the explanation that Jesus gave for the parable. Even the way that Matthew organizes the material, he separates the declaration from the explanation. Why? We've already talked about why. Because Jesus is now teaching in a way that indicates judgment. There was a time he was teaching the crowds in plain speech. But what has become evident about the nation of Israel is that it is largely unbelieving. What has become plain about the religious leaders is that they are unbelieving. They've already accused Jesus of having a demon. They have come, if not already committed it, they've come dangerously close to the sin of blaspheming the Spirit of God by assigning the work of the Spirit of God through the Son of God to Satan. And so the resulting judgment is no longer will the crowds hear Christ teaching in plain terms. Now he teaches them in parables. Verse 34 says, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable. And as we noted last week, John MacArthur said this, a parable without an explanation is a riddle. I mean, there's no way to really understand what Jesus is talking about without Jesus explaining what the parable means. And so 
judgment is on display by this separation of the parable declared and the parable explained. However, grace is also on display because Jesus does explain the parable. And so you have this outsider-insider picture being presented. The crowds, they hear one thing, the disciples of Jesus. Those who will believe Him, those who hear His Word, those who have ears to hear, they receive even more. So where there is rejection of truth, there's judgment. Where there's reception of truth, there's even more grace that is bestowed. And so with the disciples, there is an explanation. Which brings us to our third point, the parable explained, verses 36 through 43. What is the meaning of this parable? Well, Jesus gives us the aspects of the parable that were to associate with something else. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The sower of the good seed is the Son of Man. This This is a way that Jesus refers to himself. This description has messianic associations. He's describing himself as the Messiah with this term, the Son of Man. Also emphasizes his real humanity. The one who sows the good seed in this parable is Jesus. It is the Son of God. And the field is the world, verse 38. The field is the world. Now that's important to note. I don't know about you, but if you grew up in the church you've probably heard a sermon or two on the wheat and the tares. And when I was growing up in the church, the parable of the wheat and the tares was almost, in fact, I can't think of a time it wasn't, taught in a way that would indicate that the church is in view. That what you have is the church, and it's meant to be wheat, but in the church there are tares. There are people who look like Christians but are not Christians. And then eventually what happens is it it becomes exposed that they are not Christians. Are you a wheat or are you a tare? I mean, this is how it was preached. But notice our Lord makes clear this is not about ecclesiology. This is about eschatology. This is not about the church. This is about the world. The field is the world. Now you might ask, why have preachers sometimes taught this as though the the field in view is the church? Well, the answer is because there's not just one sower. The one who sows good seed, that's the son of man. Verse 39 speaks of another sower, the enemy who sowed them. The weeds is the devil. And so what commentators would say is, we know, theologically, from Scripture, that all of us were born into the world since the fall of Adam, tares. We were all born lost. Nobody was born a saint. No no one was born a child of God. And so the sowing would have been in the garden when the devil tempted Adam and Eve, and you have the fall of man. That's where the sowing would have occurred. And so they say, no, listen, the only place where the devil is still sowing weeds is in the church. The world, we know what the world is, but the church is supposed to be a good field. The church is supposed to be 
wheat. And so if we envision an enemy sowing tares in what was supposed to be a good field, this would have to be the church. This is where the enemy is at work producing counterfeits that would lead to deception and would do harm to the Lord's church. How do we answer this? If we believe the field is not the church but the world, how do we answer that? Well, my answer is you're trying to do more with the parable than it was intended to do. Christ is communicating a lesson about the end of the age. And so by bringing up the enemy and by bringing up the tares, he's going to make the point that until he returns, God's people are going to have to live alongside the devil's sons. I'll talk more more about that in just a moment, but that's just the, the simple point he's making, that until the end of the age, you have two kinds of people in the world. You have the sons of the kingdom and you have the sons of the evil one. Now, having said that, I would remind you the church exists in the world so that the tares are not just going to be out there. Sometimes the tares are going to be in here. So I would say that those who teach it a different way, that that they're not wrong to think that even in the Lord's church on this side of eternity, there's going to be a mixture sometimes, no doubt, in this church, in this church. We have genuine believers, and there's someone who's a member of this church who is deceived about salvation. That is almost certainly the case. But this parable was still not about the church. It's about the world. The church simply exists in the world. So that just like you're going to have a mixture out there, sometimes you're going to find a mixture in here. This is the reality until Jesus returns. The good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. Verse 38, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Very important lesson here in terms of Bible study. You remember that in the previous parable, the seed is what? It is the message of the word of the kingdom. Here, the seed is not the message. The seed represents people the sons of the kingdom, people who have been saved through the message. Just a good reminder that you have to take each one of these parables as it is and interpret it as it is and then synthesize it with the rest of Scripture. In other words, you're going to make a mistake if you say, well, this is what the figure meant here, therefore that's what the figure means in this next one. No, Jesus can tell stories in a way that the figures change. And so the first time the seed is a message, and the next time the seed is a people. You have to let the parables say what they say. And sometimes you find this. People make mistakes in interpreting Scripture because they say, well, it meant this here, and it meant this here. Therefore, it must mean the same thing in this location in God's Word. No, not just with the parables, but with every passage of Scripture. You have to first interpret it in its own context, in its own setting, let it say what it says, and then you synthesize it with the rest of Scripture. So here the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. By the way, this reminds us that we are the product of Christ's work. He's the one sowing this seed, and the seed is a people. He's the one who explains the people. He's the one whose work explains the people. He is the one who brings us into the kingdom of God and the family of God. He explains you, Christian. 
Give praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give praise to the Father through His Son for His saving work in your life. He explains why you are one of the sons of the kingdom, if indeed you are. The bad seed represents the sons of the evil one. Verse 38, the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares, the counterfeit wheat, these are the sons of the evil one. And they have an explanation also. The explanation for the tares, verse 39, the enemy. The one who sowed them is the devil. The sons of this world are sons of Satan. This is not new to us. This is what Jesus declared to the lost Pharisees and Sadducees who were harassing him. You are of your father, the devil. Right? Only two spiritual families in the world right now. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. You're either a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ or you are a son of Satan. This is what the Bible declares. The harvest is the end of the age, verse 39. And the harvest is the end of the age. When Jesus returns from heaven to usher in his kingdom. In fact, notice in verse 41, it says, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. What is in view here is the ushering in of the kingdom, the inception of the kingdom. And when the kingdom begins, there's going to be a great separation and this is the end of of this age as we know it. So again, this is not a parable about ecclesiology. It's a parable about eschatology. At the end of the age, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one will be separated. The reapers are the angels. Verse 39, the enemy sowed them as the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. That's important. Don't don't rush past that. I think this is helpful when it comes to some views of the Bible that I don't believe are correct. Postmillennialism is what I have in mind. The separation is not going to be made by the church. The church doesn't separate these people. The separation is not going to be made during this age. It's at the end of the age. And the separation is going to be initiated by Jesus himself and the agents for that separation will be the holy angels, not men. The angels will do the separating. That separation is going to mean everlasting judgment upon lost humanity. Verse 40, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus returning now not to save but to judge. He initiates this. The angels execute this. Notice that lost humanity is able to be recognized by its character. He he describes not just the judgment of the lost, 
but the character of the lost that will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Those who promote sin, those who work on behalf of sin, out of his kingdom, those who defy his law, commit lawlessness, those who are rebellious against God, rebellious against his word, rebellious against his people, gathered out of his kingdom. And the judgment's going to be awful. Throw them into a fiery furnace. This is consistent, isn't it? That the everlasting judgment of lost humanity is seen in the terms of fire. It's amazing how people who don't believe the Bible either want to eliminate everlasting judgment or they want to tame it down. But our Lord doesn't do that. A fiery furnace, weeping, will characterize that judgment, which would indicate perhaps the awareness that as uh, many people are prone to say, you're on the wrong side of history. You thought you were right, but you were wrong. You thought you were strong, but you now recognize you are a breath. The very one whom you've mocked and denied. You felt so smart in saying none of this was true. Well, now he's here. And you're being judged. And his angels have gathered you up, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which indicates pain to clench the jaws together in pain. An awful judgment. The reason why people do not believe in hell is not because the Bible is not clear about it. The reason they don't believe in hell is because they don't want to believe what the Bible clearly says about it. So let me find a way, some, some sort of way to explain it away, to get rid of what Jesus was so clear about. He spoke more of hell than of heaven. Warning, graciously warning of an everlasting judgment. You do realize it's grace. If you hear about the judgment and you're not yet in it, that's grace. Because it gives you the opportunity to turn from your sins and to trust in God's Son and to be forgiven of all your sins and be granted His righteousness and to become a son of the kingdom. The word is going forth. The good sower is gathering into the kingdom and family of God, his people. If today you'll believe the good news concerning Jesus and trust in him as Lord and Savior, today, today, you'll be made a son of the kingdom of God. And so your future will not be a fiery furnace. Your future will not be weeping. Your future will not be the gnashing of teeth. But if you reject the gospel, and you die having rejected the Son of God, this is your future. Or if you should be alive having rejected the gospel, when Jesus returns, this will be your future. But the return of Christ will not just mean judgment. It will also mean salvation in another sense. It will mean blessing upon saved humanity. Verse 43, then, the very same time, the very same separation, the very same judgment, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The brilliance of the grace of God will be seen. And it's going to be seen in the people. The righteous will shine forth 
as the Son. Glorification in the likeness of the Savior Himself. Delivered ones, rescued ones, now safe in the kingdom of their Father. This will put on full display the grace of God. And it will be brilliant like the sun shining in its full strength. No way to mistake what the truth is. The righteousness of these people will be confirmed. The righteous will shine forth as the sun. Righteous in what sense? Well, righteous certainly in the sense of justification. The people whom God has forgiven, the people whom God has declared to be right with Himself, the people to whose spiritual account the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed. Righteous in the legal sense, but also righteous in the formation sense, because when the Lord saves someone, now they're destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, and He's at work in their lives from the moment of their forgiveness until the day that they meet with their Savior, conforming them to the image of Jesus. That is, there is a practical, experiential righteousness that's being formed in the lives of people who have been saved. And so the people who've been loyal to Jesus on this earth, the people who have served Him on this earth, the people who've obeyed the Word of God as a pattern on this earth, these people will shine forth as the sun and will live forever in the kingdom of their Father. The kingdom beginning with a thousand years, but ending with a final judgment and the ushering in of an eternal kingdom forever and ever living in the kingdom of our Father. This is the future of the people whom Jesus has saved. This is the meaning of the parable. This is the parable explained. And then Jesus says this, He who has ears, let him hear. We finished this morning by thinking about the parable applied. We've seen what He declared. We've seen the separation between the declaration and the explanation and thought about what that means. We've now seen the explanation. Well, well what does this mean? Jesus calls upon us to hear it. If we hear it today, if we take it into our hearts, if we allow it to instruct our lives, what does it say to us? And I want to finish by giving you four lessons that are simple. Maybe even you would say they're obvious, but I think they're profoundly important because there, I see believers every day struggling because they haven't embraced the truths found in this simple story. May the Lord help us today as we think about the application of this parable. Four things I want to point out. First of all, God's plan during this age means that good and evil will be found together. Isn't that what our Lord is telling us? Good and evil are going to live side by side. His people are going to live side by side with the devil's sons, right in the midst of a world full of the devil's sons, until the Savior comes again. Which means that the presence of evil in this world, the presence of wicked people in this world should not surprise us, should not discourage us, should not cause us to doubt the ultimate triumph, which is what we're reading about, the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. Dear people, you're not on the winning side. You're on the side that has won. It's over. You're just waiting on the outworking of it. 
It's like watching the replay of a game that's already been settled. You know the score. And so when it's in the second quarter and your team is down 21 points, you're at rest. You know the final score. You know how it comes out. I've never known anyone who, who loved a team, knew they won the game, watched the replay, and they were weeping during the second quarter. Oh, we're down by 21 points. You know the outcome. So when we're in this world of ours and not only do we recognize wickedness, it seems like it's strong, stronger than ever. Does your hard attitude reflect that you know the rest of the story? We struggle with this, don't we? How often do God's people find ourselves upset, anxious, troubled because of the power of wickedness around us? Now, we need to take the whole of the message of God's Word. I'm not discounting the fact that evil is real and troublesome, that our souls will be vexed as we live in such a world, that there are very real temporal consequences to the rise of evil in a society, which would include not just suffering, but strong spiritual deception. What I am saying, though, is be encouraged. You know the end of the story. And so this should never surprise us. It should never cause us to fear. Jesus is telling us in advance that the work of the enemy is going to be evident at the very same time that the work of the Son of God is evident. And if you need a practical thing to reflect on, just reflect on God's work in this church this year. I don't know the exact number, but now nearing 100 people we've witnessed baptized this year. I don't know that things have ever been worse in our nation from the standpoint of the growth of evil. But God is at work. And so the work of His Word is not hindered. The, the ultimate saving purposes of God are not hindered. The King is gathering in His citizens. The King is gathering in His family through the preaching of the good news of, of the Savior. Second thing we see in the parable, God's plan during this age means that we must wait for the return of Christ for good and evil to be separated. When does this mixture end? When will there be a purification of this world? When does the great reset happen? I'm not talking about the one politicians envision. I'm talking about the great reset the Bible declares. When does it happen? The answer, when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again, I wonder if forgetting that truth in some way makes us sleepy as we think about the return of Christ. I mean, are you alert for His return? Are you eager for His return? Are you really, can you say you're waiting on it? Be honest with yourself. This past week, how much time has been spent by me and you where we could we could say, today when I got up, I was thinking about the return of Jesus. And I'm waiting. I'm watching. I'm alert for it. I'm desiring of it. Even so, quickly come, Lord Jesus. This is the desire of my heart. Is it because we have forgotten that He's coming? And when He comes, this is what He's going to do that we're not as zealous about His return as we should be. 
This also instructs us that every attempt to usher in kingdom conditions before the king arrives is foolishness and futility. It's going to fail every single time. This doesn't just get to what we're waiting on and watching for. It gets to where we locate our hopes. We see wickedness rising in our world. What is our hope in such a world? For a purification of this world. The answer is the hope is Jesus. The hope is not politics. We're coming up here on early voting. The election matters. God's people need to vote. We need to vote according to to the worldview the Bible has imparted to us. But dear ones, for every mercy God grants us through the means of politics, it's temporary. This world is heading toward its ultimate destination. And, And that is when Jesus comes, he's going to find a world with sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one, and there's going to be a great separation that occurs at that time. Politics will not produce purification. I'm old enough to remember the moral majority. Are you? 1980s. I thank God for how I used Ronald Reagan in our country. Praise the Lord. But here we are, what, 40 years later? Roughly 40 years, that's not very long, drag queen shows. 40 years later, the idea of transgenderism exploding right now, at least, at least this is what people would have us believe. And it seems like this great lie, this great deception is spreading throughout the world. Just 40 years after, we're going to turn things around. May God have mercy on our nation. We don't deserve it. But may God have mercy on our nation because of the remnant, because of the church. This is what we pray for in 1 Timothy chapter 2, don't we? For the salvation of our leaders. Why? For more favorable conditions for the worship of our God and the raising of our families and even the proclamation of the gospel if we're devoted to doing that. May God grant us mercy, but never pin your hopes for a purified world on politics or moral reform or even force. There have been times in the history of the world, you know, when in the name of Jesus there have been crusades. didn't represent genuine Christianity, but nonetheless, in the name of Jesus, we'll purify the world by force. No, you won't. No, you won't. None of that represents the saving work of God, the saving work of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This world, people's lives are changed one soul at a time as they hear the good news of Christ and they become a new creation in Him. If you were to say, grant me political reform or grant me an awakening, oh Lord, grant us an awakening, a great outpouring of salvation. That's what will change things. So God's plan for this age means God's people living in the midst of wickedness until Jesus returns. And it means we have to wait for His return for this separation to occur. There'll be no purification 
without the purifier arriving, and his name is Jesus. Third, God's plan for the end of time means that this mixed condition will not last forever. A great separation is coming. You see, to say that only Jesus returning will usher this in is not the same as saying, so be content with the way things are until He comes. No, the separation is coming. And we're not at home in this world. This is not our home. I mean, that's a message we need to hear in light of this as well. You say, well, I love my family and my family's sound. I mean, the Lord has been gracious to us. Most of our family members, if not all of them, have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And my business is thriving. And we have a nice home and we drive a comfortable car and everything seems to be so wonderful. And so it, it could just go on like this forever. That is a desperately wrong mindset. No, we're not satisfied with this world as it is. We long for the return of Christ. We long for a new world in which righteousness will dwell, which means what we do until He comes is kingdom work. The kingdom is coming. The king is coming. So what do we do until He comes? The great separation day is set. It is coming. So what do we do until He comes? Answer, we do kingdom work. We are citizens of heaven, serving as missionaries on behalf of the king, on behalf of the kingdom, with the word of the kingdom, until the kingdom comes. And so we pray. We pray for the lost. We pray for the Lord's people. We encourage each other by our regular gathering together. Hebrews 10 speaks of this, that we exhort each other all the more as we see the day approaching. The day is coming. So what do we do with each other? We encourage each other in light of that day. Brother, sister, don't be swallowed up by the moment. Don't be swallowed up by the world. The kingdom of heaven is coming. In one sense, it's here, it's spiritual, but it's earthly sense is on its way. Live in light of your citizenship. We share the gospel. Lost people all around us. Lost people all around us. Instructive, isn't it, that in the parable, they were not to attempt to separate the tares from the wheat, lest they do damage to wheat. And one of the reasons why the political or the moral or the forceful approach to do this separation is wrong is, I want to remind you, you all started out tares. It's by Christ's work that you're now sons of the kingdom. So that person, even that in-your-face wickedness kind of person, mocking your Savior, mocking the church, mocking the Word of God, maybe you work with them, maybe they're a member of your family, by the power of God, they can be wheat tomorrow. You don't know when the Lord is going to save or whom He's going to save. And so you pray for them and you preach the gospel to them. And yes, you endure suffering from them with joy. And in that way, demonstrate the truthfulness of the message you've believed. They have no explanation for you. Oh, if you just represent some sort of new philosophy, if you just represent some sort of club, 
new way to live your life, they can overcome that. But if you are what the Bible says you are, a brand new creation in Christ Jesus, God's work, irreversible, a child of God for forever, they'll never overcome that. And so despite all their mocking and all their attempts to harass the church and harass you as one of God's people, you you love them and you pray for them and you preach the gospel to them. And who knows, they might not be a tear tomorrow. They might be your brother or sister tomorrow. We live the gospel. We don't just declare it, we live in accordance with it. And in that way, how does the church serve in the world? 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Where in the world do we find the truth? Answer, the church. The church displays the truth and upholds the truth in the world in a world full of evil, in a world full of the sons of the evil one. The church upholds the truth of God. The day of separation is coming, and until that day, we do kingdom work. Final thought, God's plan for the end of time means two very different destinies. What this declares is that great day is the hope of believers, but the dread of unbelievers. It is coming, and that is both a warning and a comfort. A warning and a comfort. See, what I want to ask is, if that day arrives today, where do you stand? If Jesus were to return today, is it a day of hope realized for you? Or is it a day where you meet with something you have dreaded but tried to dismiss from your mind? that God is, and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, but He is the punisher of those who reject Him. Where do you stand? And in general terms, in a characteristic fashion, I can tell you where you stand already by how you live. We want to believe that the life lies that we have all these people on their way to heaven, they just don't live like it. On their way to heaven, but they love the world. And the Bible says just the opposite. That those who know Jesus Christ are known by changed lives. So here's how to do an honest self-evaluation of where you're going to stand when the Lord returns. Are you living for Him now? Are kingdom priorities your priorities in this world? Do you love Him? Do you love the Savior? Do you love His people? Do you love His Word? Does sin grieve you? Do you confess it? Do you repent of it? Do you turn from it? Is the Word of God the pathway for your life? Do you walk in it? Have you you known the new desires that belong to the new birth, the new loves and the new hatreds? Can you say, I'm not who I was before Jesus saved me? We heard a young lady this morning in the baptistry 
who lost her father and was bitter. Had a gospel conversation with her mom the night before her mom passed, and the Lord saved her. And when her mom passes, there's not bitterness. There's praise. There's a testimony of a hope looking forward to the day of reunion in the presence of Jesus. You know what that's called? That's called a miracle. Have you experienced the miracle of the new birth? Are you someone you were not before Jesus saved you? If not, cry out to the Lord Jesus today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the day you believe the message concerning Jesus, that He's the only Savior given to men, that He's the eternal Son of God come to earth, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in the stead of sinners, died on a cross in the stead of sinners, has been raised from the dead bodily, ascended into heaven where He's enthroned, lives forevermore, is coming again. Trust in Him for life and you'll be a son of the kingdom and a member of God's family today and forever. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these lessons passed on in a way that we don't just hear, we can see, given to us in images that help us to grasp these truths. Like a good sower of seed that owns a field, who not only explains a good crop, but ensures that it will be separated from the work of an enemy at the time of the harvest. Lord, what a picture for us that imparts both warning to those who have not yet been saved, but comfort to all of us who have. May these words take root in our hearts and may they bear good fruit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.